Hello everyone, welcome back. Good to see you. Uh, this is going to be part two of the video that I did just a few days ago about Christians and government. And I'll say on the front end that you don't have to have seen part one in order to understand what this, like, and understand this video and its topics and the content. Um, part one, I talked about the uh, use of Bible verses as a way of justifying or imploring people to support certain legislation and ideologies. And, you know, I broke up the difference between the way the left makes appeals uh, to Christians to get their support and the way the right makes appeals to Christians to get their support. And I mostly talked about the appeals that the left makes, which is that like, oh, hey, here's a policy and here's a verse about like taking care of people. And so if you don't agree with this policy, then you don't care about the verse. That was the content of that first one. I'd I'd highly recommend it if you haven't seen it, but you don't have to have seen that in order to understand this one. Um, and this one, we're going to address that as well as, you know, like I mentioned in the last one, that like there's also the topic, there's those appeals to compassion, and then there's appeals to the Christian ethic. What you would call it is like the right makes appeals more to, hey, uh, support us and we're going to protect society from immorality or things that are corrupting. So, that would be like abortion or laws against pornography or some of the anti-sodomy laws that they passed uh, historically. Um, so those are the types of appeals that the right makes. And so they're not, they're not the same as the one that the left makes, but I'm going to end up addressing both of them uh, at the end of this. So the first one is about legislation specifically, and this is going to be the biblical worldview, at least in my, uh, from my perspective and my theology, um, of government, of how should Christians think about government generally, the role of government, uh, what should we expect or demand from our government and from our leaders, and we're going to unpack the basically the trial of Jesus and the events leading to his crucifixion in order to understand that. Um, and one thing I will say is that I, I wanted kind of, there was a verse that was on my mind to set the tone for this. Oh, I should also say this video is geared towards Christians. Uh, I, I, of course, I want you to watch it if you don't identify as a Christian believer, but that is who this is geared towards. I'm seeing a, a big need in the Christian community for kind of a biblical understanding of these things, whether it's legislation or the government more broadly. And so that's I'm making these to at least in some small way address that need that I'm seeing. Um, and so this is for people who would believe in the deity of Christ, believe in his resurrection, in the inerrancy of scripture as God's inspired word for us, uh, so on and so forth. But of course, I would love for you to watch this, even if that's not your perspective. On this particular video, you know, you might still find it interesting in terms of just the historical account of what led to Jesus's death. Uh, but that's primarily who I'm talking to here. So, uh, all right, that said, back to the verse that came to my mind. Um, I was thinking about James 4 as kind of a way of setting the tone for how we should think about how we think about government as believers. So James 4, through, uh, 4 13 through 17 says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. 
All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And I think what why this came to my mind is there's an interesting sort of paradox here where James is describing how incredibly temporary our lives here on this earth is. It's, it's a mist. It's, it's here and then it's gone. You know, one of my mentors would say, you know, our life on the timeline of eternity, you can't even see it. It's so small. And at the same time, James is saying doing things is important. Like he doesn't say don't go to town. He doesn't say go and try to make a profit. Don't, don't go do business. He just encourages people to have the right lens and perspective on doing those things. So he says, no, just because your life is, is so temporary, that doesn't mean don't do these things, but just have the right perspective. Say, if the Lord wills, then we will do that. And I think that's the way all of, you know, life is for us on this earth. You know, it's not about like, yeah, we still have to work. We still have to figure out what car to buy, you know, or house to, or what school to go to, or what, you know, how many kids and all this other stuff. These are all decisions we have to make. We're not told not to make decisions and not to think about stuff in the world just because life is short. We're just encouraged to have the proper perspective and proper expectations and proper lens to view those things and to interact with our life in this world. And I think our view of government is no different than that. It's not that we shouldn't care. It's just a matter of having the right perspective and having the right lens with which we view that. Um, so let's. Uh, so that said, let's set the stage for uh, the, the last week of Jesus's life uh, leading up to his arrest. Um, so he comes in to, so he's been preaching, traveling the countryside, doing ministry for about three years, and he's, get, he's gained a following, and he's entering Jerusalem, he's coming to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, and he comes in in what is called the triumphal entry, and this is Palm Sunday, people are putting palm branches down in front of him, they're laying their coats down, they are worshiping him, some are saying that he's the king of Israel, the, that he's their king. Um, it's a very jubilant event, and this kicks off what we call the Passion Week, which is the week leading up to uh, Jesus's arrest, crucifixion, and resurrection. And so that sets the stage, and, and we one of the questions we're going to ask ourselves here is, why were the people who were praising him on Palm Sunday calling for Jesus to be crucified just a, a handful of days later? What happened? What gives? Um, in other words, why did men seek to crucify Jesus? We know why God ordained Jesus be crucified. That's not the question we're trying to answer here. Why did men seek to crucify Jesus? And on under what grounds was Jesus crucified by men? Uh, and in order to understand that, we have to look at what were the Jews' uh, perspective, what was their expectations, rather, of who the Messiah would be, um, because they were welcoming him as Messiah, but then that welcome quickly changed. So clearly, Jesus did not line up with their expectations in some way. Um, and so I think in order to understand what the Jewish perspective and belief on who the Messiah would be and what the Messiah was going to do, that's really important. And so what made me think about there's a really good summary, I, I think. I, I'll put a link in here. But in May 2019, uh, Ben Shapiro, you know, he's an Orthodox Jewish conservative commentator. Um, he interviewed William Lane Craig, who's a Christian apologist, on his Sunday special show. And they talked about the deity and the messianic nature of Jesus. 
And Ben gives his kind of rationale and his perspective for why he has some issues with the idea that Jesus would, would have been Messiah. And here's what he says. Uh, this is Ben Shapiro speaking. He says, In the Gospels, Jesus' vision of himself as the Messiah is completely different from the prior vision of what the Jewish Messiah is. And it's actually outside the scope of how Jews describe the Messiah or really have ever described the Messiah. The Messiah in Judaism has always been a political figure who is destined to do certain things, restoring the kingdom of Israel, maintaining control of that kingdom, bringing more Jews back to Israel. All these things are considered sort of political things that the Messiah does. But the idea as Messiah, as embodiment of God, is something that's foreign to Jews' religious philosophy going all the way back to the beginning. So that perspective that Ben uh, articulates there as, look, we've always understood our Messiah to be a political figure, to do these things that are political and um, governmental in nature, like establishing a kingdom, ruling a kingdom, protecting that kingdom um, of Israel, restoring that kingdom. You know, Israel has this long history after uh, Exodus when they go into the promised land and the kingdom is established of being this people that had their own place. And at this time, they were under Roman occupation, really, and they had had, you know, been under that kind of thing for quite a while. And so they had this expectation that the Messiah is going to come back and restore our kingdom, restore our government here. And that that's the perspective they had at that time. Um, and so what happened was they rejected Jesus's description as Messiah, not as someone who was there to free them from Roman rule or occupation, but someone who was there to free them from the bondage of sin instead. They rejected that type of Messiah. Um, all right, so back to Palm Sunday. Jesus comes in and he goes and cleanses the temple and he, you know, he pushes people out. There's, you know, the money changers and the vendors and all this other stuff. And he cleanses the temple and he begins to teach and preach. And he does this over several days. And it becomes obvious over the course of this time that Jesus is a threat to authority indeed. But he's not a threat to Roman authority. He's a threat to the spiritual authority of the time, to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the lawyers, all those people. Um, they are all very threatened by him. Jesus rebukes them publicly uh, continually, they try to test him and he makes him look stupid. Jesus was a rhetorical genius. He spends a lot of time just answering their questions and making them look really foolish while they're trying to trap him. So it becomes obvious that he is a threat to authority, but not Roman authority. He's a threat to the spiritual authority there at the time. Um, and honestly, this next part, I could summarize. I could, I could really, I, the, what the part that I'm about to go into, I could probably articulate in about two minutes in terms of the tri- the arrest and the, the trial uh, leading up to Jesus's uh, crucifixion, but frankly, I really, I really don't want to. I, I want to get into the story and really look at the details of it and articulate those for you guys. Because one, I think they're important for giving us a better understanding of what our Savior went through um, as he's literally looking, you know, his own death in the face, um, and just I think it gives us a better appreciation for the cross. And it also, again, for our purposes, it helps us understand the political climate in which Jesus lived and died and how that should inform our view as his followers of politics and government uh, more broadly. Uh, so anyway, so Jesus is a threat, and they recognize it, and they've been plotting against him for a while, but they can't arrest him during the day uh, because they know the crowds would be furious. 
So what they do is they conspire with Judas to find out his location, and they arrest him at night, which was totally illegal. This is not how things were done according to Jewish law at the time. And then they bring him before the Sanhedrin again. This is at night, early, early morning. And again, totally illegal. This is not how things were done at the time. But they bring him before whatever the council uh, they were able to bring together. I think 23, 26, something like that was required to have a quorum. And so they basically test him and say, like, hey, you're the king of the Jews and all this other stuff. And Jesus basically says, yeah. Like Jesus here presents them with, yes, I am one with God. I, he says he's the fulfillment of the prophecy in Daniel. He's the son of man. And, you know, they tear their robes. They're like, what evidence do we need? They find him guilty of blasphemy here. And so the Sanhedrin, they have everything they need. They've been conspiring to arrest him and get him for a while now. And he just gives them everything they need in order for him to be guilty of a capital offense, you know, capital punishment crime, according to their faith. But the problem is, is that they did not have the ability to carry out capital punishment. Only Rome could do that. So the council was reliant upon the Roman authorities there in order to carry out the punishment of Jesus after they found him guilty. So they bring him from the Sanhedrin over to Herod's palace, which is at the, the it's, I want to say, it's been a while since I was there. So I was there a few years ago for a seminary. The, the area is called the Jaffa Gate. I want to say it was the southern part of the city, but don't quote me on that. But Herod has this palace down there, and that's where Herod is staying, and Pilate is in town for Passover, and Pilate is also staying there. So they bring Jesus to Pilate because Pilate is the, he's the, the governor, the Roman appointed, they're called the procurators, the prefect. And essentially he was in charge of the military there. And so since the military also served kind of as the police, he was kind of the police commissioner in a way, if you will. That's a really crude analogy, but it does kind of work. Um, and he was also kind of the judiciary also. So he would determine, I mean, what's he doing here when they bring Jesus, guilty or innocent, right? And so he's determining guilt and innocence and punishment. Uh, and so that was what Pilate's role was. So the Sanhedrin wants to have Jesus uh, executed, but they need Pilate to sign off on it and to carry that out. So they bring Jesus to Pilate. And now, again, they found him guilty of blasphemy. But if you, we're going to be starting here in Luke 23. Listen to what they tell Pilate that Jesus is guilty of, okay? And listen to the, to the switch here, okay? And how they shift it back to politics. So starting in the beginning of 23, Luke 23, then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And so they've shifted the accusation because they know Pilate isn't really interested in their religious stuff. He's not a Jew. He doesn't really care so they make a charge against him as an insurrectionist. You know, Rome was constantly dealing with little rebellions cropping up here and there. And so they give a charge that Rome would take seriously, which is that Jesus is a seditionist. He's an insurrectionist. And so Pilate just looks at Jesus and he says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers him, you have said so. And that's all Pilate needs. He says, yeah, I find no guilt in this man. So that was it. it. It did not take Pilate any period of time to recognize that Jesus was not a seditionist. You know, Pilate had had a history of having to quell civil uprisings 
in his jurisdiction. He he recognized insurrectionists when he saw them. In fact, we'll talk a little bit later about a guy who he already has imprisoned who is an insurrectionist, a guy named Barabbas. He knew that Jesus wasn't guilty of that. So he tells him, yeah, he's not guilty. I'm We're done here. And the crowd says, no, 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 he is guilty. He's, he's stirring people up all over the countryside. So Pilate's like, okay, um, is he a Galilean? And they say, yes. Well, Herod's jurisdiction included Galilee, and Herod's in the palace just across the courtyard. And Pilate thinks, well, maybe I can make this Herod's problem. So there's this, to kind of give you a physical picture, so there's this palace, and there was a, some stairs leading up to this like little entryway, and there's like a, think of it like a, platform right here and then there's a doorway so the crowd's all here and jesus and Pilate are up here and so Pilate is they can't go inside of here because they would be uh, it would make them unclean for passover so they all stay outside so Pilate takes jesus from right there that outer area and brings him inside and has some soldiers take him across the way to talk to herod it's in other words i'm going to make it herod's problem uh, and so Herod was the, the king of the area at the time. Rome had appointed and kind of ratified his kingship over the area. He was actually considered the king of the Jews at the time as, you know, ordained and um, signed off on by the Roman government. Uh, and he was over Israel and uh, Judea at the time, or Judah. So Herod was excited to meet Jesus. He had heard about this guy, and he wanted to show. He's like, oh, yeah, this guy does magic tricks, right? Like, I'm excited for a magic trick. So Jesus is before him. Of course, Jesus is no one's, you know, magician there. He's not there to give Herod a show. And he's pretty disappointing. Herod found Jesus to be kind of a dud. So they mock him. His soldiers, who Roman soldiers were known for their cruelty, oftentimes they mock him. You know, they're beating him and saying, you know, prophesy, which one of us hit you? And, you know, they treat him really poorly. But Herod also finds him innocent. He says, yeah, he didn't, he didn't do anything wrong either. And Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate, again, with the verdict of he's innocent. He didn't do anything. So if you go to John, uh, or Pilate has a second interaction with Jesus. And uh, so I'm going to, this is in uh, John, John 18, John 18, then we're going to go into 19. So Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate and he's like, he's innocent. And he brings him out and he, and Pilate again tells the crowd, look, Herod's found him innocent. I've found him innocent. He has not done anything to deserve punishment. It's a really important vernacular that they use here. He didn't do anything to deserve punishment. And the crowd again insists that Jesus be, uh, that he be punished. And so Pilate starts to, he's, he brings Jesus back inside, goes to question him. And he, it says he entered, this is starting in uh, 33 of chapter 18. So he entered his headquarters again and called Jesus to him and said, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? So he's really confused. Herod's found him innocent. Pilate doesn't see him as doing anything wrong. But he's like, These guys are really pissed at you, man. What did you do? Because I don't get it. And here's what Jesus says. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am. You say that I am a king. For this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? 
So Pilate's starting to think there's something going on here, and he's he's now a little bit more curious about Jesus. But Jesus says, my kingdom isn't of this world. Look, you know what an insurrection looks like. My followers would be here. They would have kept me from getting arrest, arrested, but they didn't do that. So you know I'm not a seditionist. Um, I'm, I'm here to, to represent truth. Pilate's like, what is truth? So he doesn't, he doesn't want to kill Jesus. He doesn't want to kill Jesus. He's sensing there's something about him. So he goes back out again and he says, look, you guys have, I found him innocent. Herod says he's innocent, but we have this ritual that we do during Passover, right? We can release a prisoner. So I'll tell you what, uh, randomly, how about this other guy, Barabbas? He is a seditionist. He's a murderer. He's a thief. He's been found guilty of those things. So you know, if you had to pick between Barabbas and Jesus, I'll release one of them. Who do you want released? So it's obvious what Pilate's doing here. Pilate picks. He thinks there's no way they're going to choose Barabbas. There's no way. There's no way. But they do. They do. The crowd chooses Barabbas. And because Pilate's thinking, if I if they choose Barabbas and I can release Jesus and he doesn't get punished. But if they choose Barabbas, then I can't release Jesus and he will get punished. He still needs to get punished according to the crowd. So that doesn't work. So Pilate brings Jesus back inside and he, sa- he says, I'm going to have him punished. Fine. You want him punished? I'll have him punished. So Jesus, this, he gets scourged here. This is where, you know, in the, in the Passion uh, movie, Passion of the Christ, where you see them flogging, there's, they're rending his flesh. Um, they had, there's that cat of nine tails. They, I mean, they would really whip you until your skin was hanging off of your back. Um, and this is also, again, Roman soldiers, they twist a crown of thorns um, and they put it into his head. They dig the thorns into his flesh and they cover him in this garment. Um, you know, it's linen to say that he's, you know, royalty. They're, they're mocking him. But Pilate has him punished, and then he brings Jesus back out in front of the crowds. And this is what he says. He says, behold the man. Behold the man. What he's saying is, look at him. Look at him. Hasn't he suffered enough? Look at him. Is this enough? Are you satisfied with this punishment? Pilate scourged Jesus in an effort to save his life, really. And they still say no. They, they say no. They'll settle for nothing less than death. And then what's really astounding here is, is the next part. This is all really interesting. But they slip up and they shout, no, he, he claims to be the son of God. He's claiming deity. He's claiming oneness with God. And they slip up. They're, this is no longer about an uprising against Rome. They, they let the cat out of the bag about why they really want him dead. And Pilate remembers that his wife had sent word to him saying, have nothing to do with this righteous man. She had had dreams about Jesus and it was and it was tormenting her like she was like don't don't do anything to this man and she describes him as righteous so Pilate remembers what his wife said and he hears them say oh he's claimed deity so Pilate is waking up to the fact this is not about an uprising against Rome and it never was it never was so he brings Jesus back inside again back inside the gate and he's looking at Jesus Jesus is, is covered in blood he has the the crown of thorns on his head blood, he's beaten, he's bruised. And he asks him a question that's really incredible. Pilate says, where are you from? Where are you from? Now, Pilate already knew Jesus was from Galilee. So I don't think he was asking him about his hometown, like where's his old stomping grounds. Pilate understands that there, there is a, a spiritual thing here that he doesn't, he doesn't get, but he knows that he doesn't get it. That there is more to Jesus than he knows 
And then this, this crowd knows. He says, where are you from? And Jesus doesn't answer him. And Pilate is kind of exasperated. He says, are you really not going to answer me? Like, don't you know that I have the authority to either release you or have you crucified? Like, why won't you answer me? Like, I'm trying here, man. And Jesus looks at him, blood-stained face, and he says the following. He says, I don't have it right here. Jesus says to him, you have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. This is in John 19. I thought I had it over here, sorry, on my outline. John 19, uh, starting in verse 11. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above at all, none at all. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So Jesus is saying to Pilate, look, like I told you earlier, this is why I came you would not have the authority to do this unless God had ordained it. And I think he's also saying, it's okay. Like, this is not on you. The one who delivered me to you, it's on them. They're the one who has the greater sin. I think he's giving Pilate permission to say, just, it's fine. Like, this is what I came to do. And what's fascinating again is from here on in, it says immediately after that, from then on in verse 12, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. So they play the last card. They play the last card. They bring it again back to the politics, right? And they're saying, if you don't release him, then you are conspiring against Caesar. You are not Caesar's friend. We want to serve Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. And if you release him, then you're just as much guilty of insurrection as he is. And again, Pilate had had his fair share of dealing with civil uprising. And he finally relents. They've, I mean, he's going to die. If they do that, he's going to die. And he finally gives in, but he does, he does one more thing before giving in. Matthew 27 tells us that Pilate has some water brought out and he washes his hands publicly in front of them and says, I am innocent of this man's blood. You do with him what you will, but this isn't on me. Um, and I think he's affirming and, or at least accepting what Jesus told him of, yeah, this is on them. This isn't on you, man. Like, this is just the part you play. Um, and so he turns Jesus over to the crowd and they crucify him. They, not long after, they put the nails in his hands and in his feet and they put him up on the cross and he dies and he's crucified. So the question again is, we know why God ordained that, right? But why did men, under what grounds did men seek to crucify Jesus? It's so vitally important that he was wrongly executed. Jesus lived a sinless life. He was innocent. He didn't, he didn't do anything wrong. So he had to be innocent of what he was being crucified for. And they crucified him as an insurrectionist, as an insurrectionist. You know, Pilate had that, uh, tr that inscription put above his cross and it was usually like what they were actually guilty of. Um, and he had, here's the king of the Jews. And they were mad. They said, no, 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 put that he claimed to be king of the Jews. And Pilate says, no, I, I put what I put for a reason. But he was, that's what he was actually guilty of was being the real king of the Jews. But he was wrongly executed as an in insurrectionist. He was wrongly executed as a revolutionary. 
Um, so why do I go into that story? First, I think it's, again, really important to just give us a better understanding of what our Savior went through um, before he died. Like, I can't imagine looking at Pilate and saying, you know, it's okay. You know, I, I think that's what Jesus was doing there. Um, and just saying, let's get this over with, dude. Um, but I think it also gives us a, a vivid picture of the politics of his day and to what degree Jesus was involved in that. So think about it like this. At the, at the end, you know, Jesus said, it is finished on the cross without overthrowing the Roman government. He wasn't a seditionist. The, the Roman authorities there said, this guy's not a threat to our government. He was only a threat to the spiritual leaders. Now, we believe that Jesus will come back and establish his kingdom, but that's not what he came to do at the beginning. It is finished, had nothing to do with raising up a government, right? So was he aware of the political climate at the time? Sure, of course he was. He interacted with tax collectors and sinners. He healed uh, Centurion's son, I think it was. Um, he interacted with these people. He knew what was going on, but Jesus's primary concern wasn't with the Roman government. It was with the spiritual leaders. It was with people's spiritual health, right? So even though he knew it, and, and by the way, he acknowledged it, right? Like when they tried to test him, they bring him a coin and say, hey, is it lawful if we give this to Caesar, if we pay tribute to Caesar? And Jesus says, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. In other words, he acknowledges the legitimacy of Caesar's authority and his ability to collect taxes and what was his. He acknowledged that. He acknowledged Pilate's authority and said, yeah, you have this authority, yes, and you only have it because God gave it to you, but you have this authority. So he he acknowledged it, but he took very little interest in it, it seemed like, right? But he took a lot of interest in a different kind of leadership, in the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, lawyers, all those people that were le- leading the the Israelites, leading the Jews. He took a lot of interest in them. He had a lot of criticisms of them. He knew what Rome was doing. He knew what Roman soldiers were known for. Herod had John the Baptist killed while Jesus was still alive, right? So he knew the brutality of Rome, but he was much less concerned about that than he was with the spiritual health of his people and whether or not they were being led properly or led astray. And he had a lot to say about the spiritual leaders of the time. He called them vipers. He called them murderers. He called them whitewashed tombs, walking graves. He says that they were filled with, quote, greed and wickedness. Like, do you think greed and wickedness don't also apply to some of the Roman leaders of his time? Of course they do. Of course they do. But Jesus wasn't as concerned with them as he was with the spiritual health of people, of their spiritual leadership. And this is a theme that continues throughout the New Testament, whether it's in Acts or any of Paul's letters or Peter or anything like that. Like there is attention paid, yes, to the governing authorities at the time. I've got a few verses here. I actually do have them here this time. I'm not going to stand here with my mouth open like a moron like I did a minute ago. Anyway, Romans 13.1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. 1 Peter 2, 13-17 Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, 
fear God, honor the emperor. First, and then 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So, yes, just like Jesus acknowledged and understood the political climate and that we had to navigate our government and our ruling authorities at the time, you see that all throughout the early church as well. So be be subject to them and also live as people who are free. Like honor honor the emperor, fear God. Don't fear the emperor, but honor the emperor. That's great. And then pray for the kings, pray for the leaders, all of that, that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. So yeah, there is some what you would maybe call real estate within the pages of the Bible given to how the early church and how the believers like interacted with their government. Also in Acts 5, we see about how like even though they're told to be subject to their leadership, there there are exceptions. Like Paul was arrested, and we see in Acts 5, uh, Peter and the apostles were arrested for preaching the gospel, and they're told not to preach anymore. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. That's Acts 5, 29. So they, the same people who were saying be subject to the authorities were also saying, look, if the authorities are preventing us from sharing our faith, then we are going to defy the authorities here because we're subject to God, not to men. Um, so whenever I say there is some real estate dedicated to you know how we th- should think about government in the New Testament, yeah, that's right. But I have kind of a, this is just a me thing. Um, but something that helps me whenever I'm considering the theological importance of certain things, um, I try to not give any more mental real estate or energy or attention to topics than the Bible, at least in a theological area, than the Bible gives to those topics with real estate on the pages. So are there some verses talking about the government and you know all the ruling authorities? Yeah, of course there are. There, are, there is some time and oxygen and real estate dedicated to that. But you know what gets a lot more, as in a lot, a lot, a lot more real estate? The criteria and exhortations and commands and understanding of our biblical church leadership, of our spiritual leadership. It's all throughout there. Hebrews, Acts, Titus, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Thessalonians, Ephesians, Colossians, etc. A pervasive theme in the New Testament is how should shepherds shepherd Jesus' flock as leaders? What are the criteria? What is the character? What do you have to look for in a leader that you're going to submit yourself to under as a spiritual authority? It's really, really interesting that we are given no criteria of what to look for for the emperor, right? It just says pray for the king, honor the emperor, but it doesn't, we're not given a big list of what we should expect from our earthly, non-believing, unsaved leaders. We're just told to pray for them but we're given lots of criteria of what we should expect and demand and seek in our spiritual leaders. Well, that should tell us something about which leaders we're really supposed to be paying more attention to and what we should expect. So if we're not given expectations from our earthly, you know, unsafe, like regular governmental leaders, we're not given many expectations for that, then that tells me we probably shouldn't have a lot of expectations for them here now on this earth. We should have much more concern about the spiritual leadership that we're submitting to and who we're under and their health and their health. Now, I will say, so two things. Um, I think that we can, from the, just from these passages, 
say that there are definitely expectations that we can have of our governmental leadership, you know, in the broader sense, right? Of our government, of kings, emperors, whatever, presidents, senators, anything like that. Because in, I think it was in the Romans passage, uh, no, it was in 1 Peter, um, it's implied that government on some level is meant to restrain evil. And so we could say generally we would expect our earthly government to, again, generally restrain evil. Um, that doesn't mean they do it perfectly because, of course, they're not. Of course, they're not. We wouldn't, Jesus wouldn't come back if we had a perfect earthly government here, right? But they need to generally be restraining evil. So that's like law and order, protecting us, protecting our rights, that kind of thing. Um, and the other thing that I think we could probably imply is whenever they talk about praying for our leaders so that we can live quiet and peaceful lives, I would take that along with, and part of living that quiet and peaceful life presumably includes sharing your faith and living out your faith. Um, and so whenever we see that the one time it seems like that they disobey their leadership, it was whenever they were telling them not to share their faith, then I, could, I would say it seems reasonable that the other side of that is we should expect, or at least not expect, but seek and look for leaders that at least give us the freedom to share and express our faith because otherwise we would have to disobey them, right? That's what Peter and they did, and the early church did whenever they were told not to. They, they disobeyed them. Um, so it would be desirable to look for leaders and governmental systems and structures that would protect our right to share our faith. And again, as is in the, uh, in the first Timothy verse in chapter two, that we would pray for them so that we can live a quiet and peaceful life, right? So we want the type of leaders that allow us to live out our faith in a quiet and peaceful and dignified way, not, you know, under oppression or suppression. Um, but it's so important to emphasize that's not necessary. I'm not saying those are things we should expect from our earthly leaders at all. You know, I don't think God's looking around and looking at North Korea and going, man, if only they had a first amendment then, then I, my gospel would be able to spread there. Then, you know, if only, if only, right? If only they had the Constitution. No, of course not. Like, God is over. He's sovereign over everything. Like, these guys were writing this, these things about honoring the emperor and submitting to authority. At the same time, as Christians were being killed and persecuted and hunted down. You know, Nero was killing Christians. Peter was crucified in the Circus Maximus upside down for sharing his faith. Um, and so, like, it's not necessary to have the, the uh, freedom of speech and those types of things in terms of our of government. I'm just saying those are things that we, if you're going to say what generally should you expect or hope for in government, that they would generally restrain evil and that it would be nice if I had the ability to live a quiet and dignified life and share my faith without having to break the law. But again, that's not necessary. A believer in Iran right now is still going to share their faith even though it's probably illegal in a lot of ways in a lot of areas. Same, like there are places in Africa right now where Christians are experiencing a legitimate genocide where because of their faith, right? But they're still defying the authority and sharing their faith. So here's what I'll say. I'll, I'll kind of bring it to a close here. I love this country. I love America. I love the Constitution. I love the Declaration of Independence. I love the American experiment. I love Western philosophy and of like liberty, I love you know the enlightenment values of thinking through things and logic. I think all of those things point back to God because I think God's extremely logical. He's extremely reasonable. God, God, you know, God. Never, it doesn't say in the Bible anywhere leap of faith, right? Like God never asks us to do that. 
God is the, the king of all logic and reason. Um, and so, and I love that. I love that that's ingrained in our country. I love that we, our founders understood that our rights come from God and that government's role is to protect those rights. I love that. Um, but my hope isn't in that. My hope isn't in that. Jesus did, he said, it's finished without overthrowing Rome. Rome was still killing people. Again, Herod had killed John the Baptist not that long ago. Rome was still in charge and Jesus said, it's finished. Um, and so our hope isn't in government. You know, I think we're called to, to care about that. I, you know, I talk about politics, right? Like I talk about all those things, but we, we know as believers that it's, it's the heart. It's the heart is where change comes from, is people having their heart changed and growing to love God and accept Christ. And so if we want a government or if we want leaders that reflect our values, then we have to create a culture and a society that's going to create those leaders. You know, Ravi Zacharias, you know, rest in peace. He's with Jesus right now. Ravi Zacharias said, politicians don't create culture. The culture creates the politicians. So if we want leaders that reflect our values, then we, the, you know, back to the my first video, we don't legislate our own convictions and verses, right? Like you can support legislation and ideology and stuff like that if you think that that is an expression of your faith, but it's not the sole expression of your faith, right? Like my hope isn't in a piece of law. And so that's like thinking about like abortion, like abortion is like, I don't agree with abortion. Um, and I think it's totally fine and a good thing for you to support leaders who also don't support abortion, but abortion's not going anywhere, man. Like that's not going to get overturned. Like, I'm sorry, it's not going anywhere. So our, how we think about a leader, I don't think should hinge on whether or not they support abortion or not. I just don't. Same with like same sex marriage. It's not going anywhere. Like we, our expectations of government have to be the same as our expectations of people. They're flawed. They're going to do things that we don't agree with. And I think we should give the same attention and oxygen and mental real estate and focus and hope on that as Jesus and the early church did. Like, look, we acknowledge it. This is where we live. This is the types of things that we hope happen. We're going to pray for our leaders. Um, but our main focus is changing the, the hearts of people so that we can hopefully live in a society where people do have those same beliefs. And then maybe people won't pass Roe v. Wade, right? So I think it's it's fine to you know, vote. I think believers should vote. I think Christians should vote. And, you know, find people that you support that you think might share your values. That's fine. Or don't. Or don't. I think you can vote for people that don't share your values, honestly, because I don't think we're called to have that expectation of our leaders. Again, we have big, long lists of what we should look for in our spiritual leaders. We have no lists of what we should look for in the in our kings and emperors and stuff in the context of the of the church. We just don't. Um, and so I think that we have to, to have that lens, thinking about James 5, have that lens, or James 4 it was, of, of the right perspective on our church, or on our leaders, which ones we actually should be looking to, and which ones we just kind of acknowledge are there, right? So be involved, support people, be involved in politics, be involved in, in these debates, but all that you would understand the change is always going to happen on the cultural level. Um, it's not going to happen, you know, we can't expect that from our leadership. I think it's fine to want that. I think it's fine to pray for that. It's fine to desire that, um, but for, we have to have a right expectation of our leaders. Um, and again, I love this country. I'm doing a video on 4th of July uh, that I'll probably put out Friday or Saturday talking about uh, the the revolution a little bit and why I love it um, and why, you know, I think there's some parallels with what's going on right now. Um, so I love this country, but it, it's a mist. It's a mist. My hope is not in the Constitution as much as I love the Constitution. My hope is in the Word of God and in His 
work he's doing here um, in the hearts of people. That's where my hope resides. Um, I hope that helps. I, I Again, I, I probably didn't articulate all this stuff perfectly. Um, I want you to, to care about government, but just don't put more emphasis on it than the Bible does. Uh, that, that's all. Uh, if you have any questions, if there's anything you disagree with, please leave comments. You can shoot me a message, anything like that. Again, if you haven't seen the first video, I'd encourage you to check that out. I'm going to probably link that here uh, as well. If this is the kind of thing you're into, um, I don't really do very do it very much. This is the second time of kind of putting on that theology hat. Um, but if you're interested in culture and politics, philosophy, and all this kind of stuff, um, I mean, that it does, my faith does inform how I talk about these things. Um, so I encourage you to please like, share, and subscribe uh, on YouTube. That's at Return to Reason. On Twitter, that's at My Mundane Mind. I have a website. I'm building a community over at returntoreason.locals.com. I'd love for you to come be part of the conversation, people talking, sharing stuff, getting involved. Uh, I'd love to see you over there. Please come there. Uh, my stuff is on Spotify as well and wherever else, what other audio podcast my wife uploads it to. I'm going to quit just pretending that I know. I know it's on Spotify at least. Um, that's it. So thanks for watching. And like I said, probably on Friday or Saturday, I'm going to do one about rioting and the revolution and why I think there's a lot of parallels between the frustration people have now that I think is legitimate and the frustration that our founders had um, and what's it look like to accurately direct that frustration instead of just throwing it out there at, at anything. Um, anyway, thanks for watching uh, and I'll check you guys next time. Peace.